Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Shea Station podcast brought to you by John Boy Media. I'm one of your co-hosts, Jolly Olive, a.k.a. Jack, and joining me as always is former starting pitcher, Blairy Jelvins. But today we have another very special guest for you guys, perhaps the most special that we've had yet. Uh, SNY fame, New York sports fame. You guys have definitely seen his face around, whether it's in one of his skits or on-field reports. It's SNY Zone. Steve Gelbs. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. And Steve, we got to talk about your haircut, man. It looks fresh. Well, thank you very much. I will start with this before we even get into the haircut. Uh, you got to get better guests. If I'm the best guest. So Come far, on. You, you beat me to it. I was like, man, let's let's not pump this guy up too much. Oh, my God, guys. Come on. Yeah, but I know I'm a little late to this because I, I don't think this is a very new Jerry Blevins haircut, but my haircut's OK. This is the the Larry Jevons I, I know and love. <laughs> I mean, we already talked about it last episode. We don't want to gas him up too much. You know, this haircut, this haircut is going to be this short and this tight for the foreseeable future because I have no idea when I'm going to get the call that I got to go to Port St. Lucie for the next month. And that hair, especially in the humidity, this thing gets crazy. So I got to keep it tight at all times. So about once a week, once a week and a half at the barber. Now. Jeez. That's a, that's a pro move, Steve. And that's something that... That, that you're like in the bullpen, just staying loose, being nimble, just waiting for the call. You never know. It's the second inning. You could be the long guy. You're, you're running like a, like a um, Seth Lugo role here where you could come in early, come in late. You're just always at the ready. You got the weighted balls, but not all the way, not the head, <laughs> like the early weighted balls. Yes, sir. Yeah. I mean, Steve, we saw your pandemic poofy hair. How long was that growing out? Like it had some height. It was up there, man. That was, yeah. Oh, that was aggressive. That was probably, I don't know, three months worth, three and a half months worth. And then I had to, I had to get my wife to, to cut it. And if you watch that video, which I posted during the pandemic of, of her cutting it, you'll see that it was sped up about a hundred <laughs> times. That was really just so that you wouldn't see me saying like, Ooh, not there. Oh, stop, stop, stop. What are you doing? What are you doing? You know? It looked like I was a much better camper. Than I was. Good. Smart. What a saint to put up with you for all this time. Uh, shout out to Julie. Um, just handling your your nonsense and your mess on a regular basis. What a saint. I honestly judge her a little bit. I really <laughs> You're like, if are you the person I think you are if you could put up with this for that long? Like what's what's wrong? Actually, at our wedding, and if you look at our wedding video, you hear this like gasp in the crowd because they don't know where I'm gonna go with it next. But I'm giving like a speech thanking everybody for being there. And I said, you know, when we first started dating, people would always be like, all right, well, you know, what's wrong with her that she'd be with you? And I, I thought to myself, like, man, what is wrong with her? <laughs> Where's he going? <gasps> yeah. All right. So we mentioned that you're getting uh, daily haircuts now, just about uh, in anticipation for spring training. Can I just get like some raw thoughts from you on the, the state of the lockout, state of the match, that kind of thing? Yeah, I... You know, on one side, I am not surprised at all that this is where we are. You know, I heard, and I think this was kind of the, the common refrain for months leading up to the, the real decision day. Um, well, they're going to they're gonna come to an agreement. This is not going to cost any regular season games. And all I kept telling people was, in these sides, there's a lot of animosity. And it's built up for a long time. And I just, I don't think it's a slam dunk that we're not going to miss any games. So in that respect, that's come true. Uh, on the flip side, 
given what the the delta is right now, what the gulf is right now, what the argument is right now, it's stunning to me that there's potentially going to be a delay to the season. I, um, you know, I'm a huge hockey fan. I remember very well when they lost the season in 2004, 2005. In that case, and in a lot of these cases, when you lose games, you're talking about fundamental changes to the economics of the sport, to the sport in general. The players dropped a lot of that pretty early on. And I thought once they did that, you know, an agreement would be, become to relatively quickly in time to save games. And that's not what happened. So I, I, you know, still, I would be stunned if this went on so deep into the season. I don't think it'll go much beyond April, but I, I am a little, as again, as much as I thought that there could be enough animosity to get us here. Uh, I still am a little surprised that we are here. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Like I, I, it was shocking because the sides were so far apart. The, I'm pro pro labor. I have, you know, there's no secret about it. The the players from the last CBA got hammered. And then I thought there was going to be a major work stoppage to start the year because I didn't think that they would move off of how far that they needed to come back. But they did a major concessions just to get the games going. And I was more surprised that even with them moving, there wasn't even any movement from the from the owner side to meet them in the middle. And they're still claiming like I was just surprised that like what were they what's the end goal for them? Like, do they want to just status quo same? Like, I, I don't I, I, I was shocked after the movement that the players made that there wasn't a season to it wasn't a regular just let's do this. So that yeah, I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that it was inevitable, but also still surprised. Yeah. And I mean, we have deadline day number three today. So hopefully by the time this comes out, there's a sliver that it all ages poorly. So I have my fingers crossed for that. I I don't, I don't think it's going to. (laughs) No, I don't think so either, but I hope we sound stupid. That'd be great. I would be very glad to sound wrong right about now. And I'd be happy about that recent haircut I got. There you go. Well-timed. And uh, you know, in our workspace and in our fandom, we're in a very unique space because we were one of maybe three or five teams that were very willing to spend money on free agent players and probably will continue to do so once this lockout eventually ends. Uh, Do you think that there's like a very like real fear among other teams and owners of a guy like Steve Cohen and of these other owners that are just willing to negotiate past that CBT or what have you? Yeah, probably. I think, you know, I think that's one of the things that gets lost too sometimes in CBA negotiations in general for both sides. There's, yeah, it's the it's the ownership group versus the players, but there's such a, a spectrum on both sides of what you're looking for. And I think that's one of the big challenges is corralling enough people on both sides to be in agreement on what the compromise is, what the ask is. And so, yeah, on one side, I think the ownership group as a whole is certainly looking for something from the players, but they're also fearful, a large chunk is fearful, that Steve Cohen is going to just go out and use that vast fortune, which is, you know, what triple what the next owner is worth to go out and spend and win. And from a Mets fan perspective, it's amazing, but from other ownership groups, it has to be a real fear. And so that adds another wrinkle into all of this, right? Is that you have not just the owners versus the players, but I'm sure some owners versus other owners. 
Yeah, I think that always gets hidden is inside there. There's three tiers, basically, of ownership. There's 30 teams. There's the top 10 market teams. There's the middle and then there's the bottom. There's always contention, even more than they will ever. Every decision that they make is always unanimous, but there is that is complete BS. It is never unanimous. They'll end up saying yes, but it's it's a tough fight behind the scenes for you know, Manfred's got a tough job. He makes it a lot tougher with, you know, with some of the way he presents himself, but corralling those owners and getting them on board with anything is, is a tough deal. And Stevie Cohen, even getting approved to buy the Mets was a shock to me because I remember when the Cubs came up for sale, when the Ricketts bought the Cubs, Mark Cuban was what was talking publicly that he wanted to do it. And they shut that down immediately because they didn't want him to spend. So it's, it's surprising. These whispers existed then. Yeah, exactly. That's why it's this is nothing new. This isn't like a, a new thought that's leaked out publicly. Then there were talks about ownership hesitancy with with Steve Cohen taking the job. So and I will say this, too. I, I agree with you, Jerry, about about Manfred. I think that it's one of the things also that sometimes gets lost with commissioners in all sports. That's really what they're paid to do is to be the armor for the, the ownership group and to take those bullets. And you know, he takes a lot of them, but they're, they're, that is what the bulk of their job is publicly, is to take those bullets for the ownership. Exactly. Yeah, and I mean, Manfred has to do it probably more than any other owner in history right now, just because of what we were talking about a little bit before the show, how the players have their own voices now. They're on social media. They can communicate directly with the fans, and there's kind of, there's no secrets anymore. Like in 1994, it felt like a lot of the fans were on the owner's side and they wanted the sport back and they wanted baseball and were blaming the players. Now it's completely flipped on ahead because the players can actually communicate directly with the public and debunk news that is entirely misleading and stuff like that. We want to, we want to get back to, so the spending, Stevie Cohen, what do you, where do you see the Mets roster right now? Were you excited about the, the spending spree that he kind of brought in with, with Marte and Canna and, and Scherzer, obviously. And where do you see it moving once, you know, let's just assume that there's going to be labor peace. Where do you see it moving forward? Right. I mean, well, listen, and this, the caveat is we just don't know what the CBT is going to be, what the penalties are going to be. And that could certainly slow some spending down, but in terms of, did I love the moves that were made? Yes. I don't know how you couldn't. I mean, Scherzer is on a different level, but now, those three guys that they brought in, I think they all made a lot of sense in terms of fit on the roster, for one thing, and that's kind of the obvious jumping out front. But I think the other thing, and it, was, it wasn't even unspoken, it was kind of hinted at throughout the offseason with each of these additions, is the culture change that I think they're going to bring. And I think that that was sorely needed. Um, I, don't, I don't know exactly, listen, I, I don't, over the last couple of years, not having access to the clubhouse, it's a little bit harder to fully get in there and see the dynamics and understand it the way that I once could. So I don't want to pretend to be an expert on that. But uh, I think that there were some issues with that clubhouse last year and some um, trying to figure out the best way to put it, uh, you know, maybe sometimes looking for outside blame. You know what I mean? Um, and and not necessarily a whole lot of looking internally at what was going wrong. And I do think that the guys that were brought in, the Scherzer certainly, and you know him as a teammate, Jerry, but uh, the intensity, the accountability he's going to bring, I've heard nothing but amazing things about Escobar. Um, Escobar, I've heard, is someone that 
for the culture, for, for the accountability, for getting in guys grill if things are not going well. He's, he's great there. Canada, the same thing. You know, Marte, the same thing. So I think that the talent infusion was needed, but the, the culture infusion was certainly needed as well. And then you bring in a guy like Buck, who's not going to be up for any of the nonsense either. I just think that that's going to be a, a major thing. And you know, I remember talking to Conforto during spring training last year and then right before his last game, the two of us were talking in the dugout. And one of the things that he had said is in spring training, he said, I'm tired of all the hype because there seems to be hype around this team every year, but something is missing and we can never get over that hump. And it seems like we fall short of that talent level. And then it happened again last year. And I asked him what was missing. And, you know, he talked about kind of, again, hinting at those things that, you know, it's a tough market to play in. And sometimes you've, you've got to understand that, they're going to be tough on you as a fan base if you if you lose, but you can't let that affect you because when you win, there's no better place to be. And um, so, I, again, I just think there were enough whispers that they needed some people to come in here and 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 change it. And I think they brought in those people for sure this offseason. Yeah, Steve, you uh, you mentioned Buck a little briefly there, and I actually want to talk to both of you guys about your your conversation with Buck Walter a couple weeks ago in SNY. Uh, it was the first time we had heard from Buck in a while, and we know that he's currently like unable to talk to a lot of his own players because of the rules of the lockout and stuff like that. Uh, how did you gauge Buck in that conversation? How did you uh, take him in? Yeah, I, I was I was blown away. <laughs> and I don't want to, you know, sometimes I think in the offseason when you meet new guys, whether it's new players, whether it's new coaches, new GMs, whatever, um, everybody's going to sound good in the offseason on the first interview. But it just seemed, and this is not taking away anything from, I think Luis Ross is going to be a great manager one day. I really do. I think he was put in a really tough spot the last couple of seasons. Um, I, you know, obviously Mickey Calloway was what he was and, and first time manager there, but you, you listen to Buck talk and you're like, Oh, that's what a season manager. That's what a, a guy that is confident in what he is doing, what he knows, the type of experience he's had over the year that's what it sounds like. And uh, I just think that you, know, you listen to him, the attention to detail, you listen to him talk about the importance of player relationships. You listen to him debunk the myth that he's going to be against analytics when this is a guy that for the, the entirety of his career has been desperate for any and all information. And I just think that he is the right guy at the right time for this team. And I think it's the right team for him in his career too. One last crack at it. It's a team that's built to win now, but quite frankly, doesn't really know yet how to win. And I think he's going to be the guy that's going to come in and is going to teach them how to win. And so for me, it's the perfect marriage. And while I've been burned at times being overly optimistic, uh, I don't think this is going to be one of those times. Steve, you fit, you fit right into Shea Station because Jolly and I are both very optimistic in general. It's a problem. And it's very anti-Mets to be positive. Right. <laughs> and right. so... Yeah. get killed sometimes publicly. You 100% do because, yeah, I'm Buck Showalter. I, I've known Buck throughout the years. I've played against him, uh, teams that he's managed for a long time. I've had bunches, bunches of conversations with him behind the, the turtle shell during BP and stuff. Um. But I, too, was blown away by his presence. He's, a, he's always come across as like a really intelligent baseball mind, but he's also got the communication skills, the, the just 
that confidence that he knows what's going on. And he's so confident that he's not afraid to seek out things that he doesn't know. The, the smartest people, smartest person I've ever met is the, we talked about our unit is Michael Weiner. He used to, he was our old executive director, passed away, brain cancer, miss him dearly. Uh, we're missing him right now for sure. Um, but he was the smartest man in the room all the, all the time, but he always asked questions and he was always aware that there was knowledge out there that he didn't know. And that's the same vibe I get from Buck Showalter is he isn't old school in the sense that he's like, this is how I do things. He's old school in the sense that he says, this is how things are done, how I like to do things. I like to gather information from analytics I'll take everything I can get and then put that to use the best way I know how. And that's what I was blown away with. On top of all of his baseball knowledge, his willingness to continue to grow, um, but also his personality, man. He's funny. He's really very likable, but he's also super like a general type. He, he's the guy that you want, the captain of the ship kind of um you know the guy in front of the camera that'll take the blame he's not afraid to will like to willingly say i messed up there and that's that's everything that you want on a team like this i was really sad when the mets didn't hire bob melvin because i have a really good personal relationship with him um but having talked to buck and seen his interviews and kind of listened to some of the people involved I'm actually super excited moving forward. Um, and again, optimistically so, and I might get hammered for it, but I'm willing to go on record as well and saying, I feel like this is the right guy at the right time. Let's just, we'll delete this. If it <laughs> there's okay? We'll carefully it's, cut it around. Don't worry. Carefully right. cut around it. We'll delete it. But one of these days we have to be right. Right. Eventually one, one of these days it has to happen. You would think so. Just mathematically speaking, it's inevitable that we're going to get something <laughs> wrong, but we're like those people at the, you know, at the roulette wheel looking at the, Oh, it was red six times in a row thinking that it's more obvious to turn black, but that's not how it works. I, uh, you know, my real issue is that my first full-time year was 2015 and I was like, Oh, the world's serious. This is easy. What's the, this is nothing <laughs> every year. That, I kind of wanted to talk to you about that. So you and I came up basically the same time. Can I, I was thinking about this this morning, actually, and I don't, I doubt you'd remember this, but the day that you got traded, who was it, Matt Dendecker? Is that who you got yep. traded? Yeah, that's who I got traded for. Nailed it. Good job. Wow. The day you got traded, I was putting the key card into my room at, at the residence in Port St. Lucie, and you were like three doors down. And you turned to me, you said, hi. And you asked me, you asked me some question about <clears throat> something local. Where do I go? What do I do? Whatever. And I was brand new. I was like, oh man, this is a major league. I don't, I don't, I don't I'm not going to introduce myself. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's still in the lobby or something. I don't remember what you asked me, but I think I was the first person that you saw associated with the Mets. So I love it. I love it. I'll take that. I have no, I don't remember that at all. I think it's because way back then you had a full head of, of, you know, dark brown black hair now you wow. i don't remember that Steve. nine years and it's turned gray that's what <laughs> happens yeah now you you and i we both have two kids i think we got married at the same the time same like day. the same day yeah what so that's 2015 right yep i got yep, married yep and that. yep so we <laughs> oddly coincidence the difference is i'm my career is over and yours is ascending still which is awesome man i'm I, i'm super glad to have you on because 
there's weird, like a baseball so strange and we're around so many people so often that you get to kind of see people at three in the morning in the lobby of a hotel and, and you erase all the, the facade of, you know, I'm on TV or, you know, and we get to see real personality and to be able to, you know, meet a genuine person like yourself and the person that you portray on TV is 100% kind of who you are. You're genuine. I love that. And I wanted to get like the, the Shea Station, the Mets fans, an appreciation for you because I appreciate your, your type of being because it's fun to be around, especially when you're around so many people so often. So I'm glad that, that you brought that up. Well, I appreciate that. And I texted you this morning that I, I fooled you too. So that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. That's it. You know, listen, my, my whole thing, and it's, I think it's evolved a little bit over the years. I've become more comfortable in understanding what this job is and what covering ba- covering baseball is unlike any other sport, probably unlike any other job in this industry because it is every day. And at least prior to the pandemic, there's so much more access. I mean, we're in the clubhouse at three o'clock for a seven o'clock game. Um, in terms of the, the radio and TV broadcast, we're traveling with you guys, like you said, They'll be in the lobby at 3 a.m. in a hotel and don't even know what city we're in. Uh, but for me, you know, I think it becomes, I think sometimes one of the mistakes people make in, in this industry is kind of treating athletes like they're, they're robots or putting them on some sort of a pedestal and not recognizing that they're just people. <laughs> you know, everybody's a person doing the job, their job. It's, it's different than your job, but the, the stresses, the pressures are no less. They're heightened probably. And, you know, for me, one of the things, I, I, you know, I, again, I don't know how much you got, you guys talk to so many people, how much you remember this, but one of the things that, that I started doing very early on and I keep it up, you know, every spring is I like to ask every, instead of going into the clubhouse and, you know, talking, whenever I have a question, just asking a question, asking this, asking that, making it so formal. I like to get, a one-on-one, no recorder, no camera, nothing in the dugout before practice one day, after practice one day, where we just kind of, you know, chop it up a little bit and get to know each other a little bit. And, and the, one of the first questions I ask everybody, because I'm fascinated by this, is when was the moment that you realized, wow, the major leagues is a, a possibility, a real possibility? Because the way that I look at it is that everybody that plays this sport at that level was me at one point, like we were all little leaguers and something happened along the way where you guys just became so ridiculously good, whether it was some natural talent, whether it was some extra work, whether it was something, some passion that catapulted you to this level that 99.9999999% of the population could only ever dream of. I think you said you, when I asked you that question, it wasn't even until you were like a junior in college or something, right? Yeah, yep. I think when you break down those barriers a little bit, you get to know guys and not everybody's going to, you know, some guys have more walls up and you have to meet people where they are, but everybody's different. And if you can show this genuine respect for what guys do, this understanding that even the worst major league player you come into contact with is so ridiculously and absurdly good at this sport. um, I think that you can get deeper you can get a a better respect you get better answers to your questions because guys know you're not out to get them uh and you know you get more interesting stories i mean my job is all about finding something that 
somehow Gary Cohen doesn't know, <laughs> that somehow <laughs> Beat doesn't know, and it doesn't happen unless you don't go into every day so like formalized so it's it, you just try and get to know guys get to know their family get to know they're gonna have good days they're gonna have bad days know when to leave them alone know when you know that and that's kind of been my my whole thing and i just try and be a good person and um you know not everybody's gonna like you and you just have to deal with it and move on but that's kind of the the baseline what i try to do and i think it's it's worked out pretty well i agree john you have anything i I've, I've got a bunch of stuff i want to follow up i didn't know if you wanted to continue I mean, yeah, it's just been nice, like, listening, honestly, for the yeah. past, like, 10 minutes. It's been really good. That comes across genuinely, Steve. It's in the clubhouse because it's a tough place to, to be, uh, especially as an outsider. And non-players, non-coaches are definitely outsiders. Even even amongst Mets hires, you know, you, you've you got, you know, your PR, all these people um, are kind of outsiders of this clubhouse that are constantly coming in and asking players to do things. I need you for this. I need you for that. They're constantly wanting something. Come meet this player. Come meet this person. Come do this interview. And they're constantly asking the difference between, and and I always do it. And especially in New York, all the, the media members, there's a lot of them that are out to write a sensational story or to, to, to get crap. And that's crazy. It's a, it's a crazy thought. And so you always got your guard up as a player and when you did that to me, you brought me aside off the record. Um, it opened up a dialogue. I was able to talk to you as a human being. Um, there's a few guys like DeComo. It's great. You, Wayne, DeComo. I love James Wagner. Like, there are people. Wags is great. I, there's Literally people. Gets to do it really well. You know, that, it was watching guys like that for me. You know, that's yeah. observing, not knowing what you don't know. You know, I always knew just be a good person, right? But um, – but not knowing what you don't know and observing the people that do that. I used to see Mark do that. I used to see Tony do that. I still have relationships with those people because they're people and they viewed me and other players as human beings as well. You can write critically about me all you want. I understand you have a job to do, but you also understand that I'm a human and you want to get my perspective and you're not trying to smear a smear campaign. You're just doing your job. And so I always respected that. Sometimes, you know, sometimes there's a, a bit of a divide, a bit of a gulf, and it's difficult because that does happen. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's fun. Like the, the, the bad writers ruin it for the good ones because the, the good ones aren't out to, to write something just for clicks. They want to develop real stories. And if somebody, like, if somebody writes a slanderous piece, you, they don't just say, I, I'm out on that guy or that, that writer, I'm out on all of it because it's, I don't need to do it. And that's, and one of the issues I think too with, and why I think it's so critical to get clubhouse access back is that this Zoom divide that has taken place over the last two years, it has created these, these echo chambers, these bubbles where it's the media and the players, right? It's not Steve Gelbs and I don't know, you know, Francisco Lindor, JD, whatever it's, it's one group and another group. And there's a lot of, in, I'm sure in the clubhouse. So you don't even know who asked you that question sometimes because of the way that it's set up. So it's much more difficult to really build the relationships that, that again, get the fans, which is ultimately the whole point of it, get the fans, the really interesting stuff, you know, that, that matters. 
So we'll see where that goes. But I know it's not the top of the CBA talk right now, but I think it's critical that, that we get back in there. Yeah, Steve, I, I think that that whole story is great because like there's a lot of like core essentials that are necessary to being good at what your job is. I actually I wanted to keep us in 2015 for a second, because when it was announced that the Mets were retiring Keith Hernandez's number, uh, you told a great story on your Instagram that I really, really enjoyed. And I was actually wondering if you could just recount it for any listeners that are unfamiliar with what we're talking about. Yeah, Keith's the best. And he is. Like, there's a reason I tell people this. There's a reason why Keith was the captain of that team. There's a reason why if you if you look back and you watch that 30 for 30 that they did, everybody talks about Keith as the missing piece, as that with this reverence of like Keith got us over that hump. I was again, this is, you know, this is admitting human just realities. Right. When I got that job, I was way in over my head. I did, I did not have the, the, the base yet to truly understand uh, how to do this job properly. I'd been working in high school sports mostly. And <laughs> no, you Jolly, go. you're killing it, man. Same feeling. But, but um, I also was replacing an absolute legend, right? And even though I would say the right things, well, I can't be Kevin. I can't. Um, start there. Of course, all I was trying to do was take that baton and run with it. And it is literally an impossible thing to do. And trying to do that works against you. You don't realize it at the time, but it totally works against you. Um, you know, we talked earlier in the podcast about, about uh, you know, Buck not knowing what he doesn't know. And the smartest guys in the room always asking questions. I, at times, would try to fake like I knew things rather than just asking the people the questions, right? Uh, it took me a couple of years to, to get there. But so I was really struggling. And the one thing about our broadcast, our broadcast is widely regarded as, as the best in, in the country. But it's also a broadcast that even if you're on it, there's no such thing as suffering fools. If I went and I did a story that was not up to snuff for that broadcast, there was no... Oh, uh, well, hey, you know, that's interesting, Steve. It would be either a, well, let me question what you just said, pushing back on what I just said, or, and this on the air, or it would just be ignored. And that was, you know, in, in the moment, I wasn't sure, like, what am I doing? But it's really, our broadcast refuses to ever, um, refuse to ever put, like, put anything up for what's what's what I'm looking for it refuses to to leave anything up for debate about like is it real is it not real whatever is said is the true thought they have a standard a high standard for what exactly. what that yep so so I was floundering I mean I really was I was floundering and Keith sensed it I mean really I, I didn't talk to the guys about it at all but Keith sensed it and we were on a bus we were staying in uh this really interesting hotel in Tampa Bay that had this like shuttle service to, to Tropicana field. And only Keith and I were in the, in the shuttle. And he starts talking to me and he's like, Hey man, um, you know, how you doing? I, I, you okay. Like you, I know it feels like you're, you're down on yourself. You're, you're doubting yourself when you're doing reports and just want to tell you, like, you're going to be there. Like you work hard, you'll get there. You'll be okay. Just keep your head down. Like, don't worry about, I was, Listen, I was, as much as Kevin told me, don't pay attention to Twitter, 
I was paying constant attention to Twitter. They hated me. You know? Like it was, I, I was, I was so in my head. And so he goes, uh, so, so, he, you know, he, he pumps me up a little bit. And then he says, we start talking about Tropicana Field. And he's like, hey, you know, Tropicana Field, it reminds me a lot of the old Astrodome. Do me a favor. Can you just, after the game tonight, can you go back to the hotel and do some research for me? And find, I don't remember exactly what we were talking about in the, in the moment, but, you know, find some nuggets for me about this, about the Astros back then, blah, 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 blah. And it, he made it very much seem like I was doing his research. And I was like, yeah, I mean, it's Keith Hernandez. Of course, I'll, I'll do research for you. <laughs> like, go ahead. Yeah. So I went back. I, I found a bunch of things. And I find Keith at the ballpark the next day. And we're in the clubhouse. I'm like, hey, Keith, I found a bunch of good things. And I start kind of running through a couple of them. And he's like, hey, you know what, Steve? I don't have time to do this right now. We'll either talk about it right before the game or I'll do it tomorrow, the next day. Okay. So we go on the air and I think, again, I don't remember exactly how it came up. I might've been doing like a, a report about something associated with Tropicana, something like that. But it was always, it had gotten to the point where it was like, I would do my quick 15, 30 second hit and then they would close my mic. Cause I didn't have any, like I was so, I wasn't good. I wasn't there yet. And Keith just is like, he starts talking he's like, Hey, Steve, you know, I, I know that we were talking before the game. You found a lot of really interesting things that you, you have a lot of interesting things to say. And he just basically, I didn't have time to think about it. I, I didn't have time to psych myself out. And it just became a conversation that the two of us were having. And if you see it, when I posted on, on Twitter and on Instagram, you can hear like this pause where I, I didn't even know where to go after he brought me back in. And, and there's like a little stumble in the beginning. But that's key. Like that's what, and it was, it was him, A, showing me that he had my back, B, showing me how it needed to be done. Like, don't, don't psych yourself out so much. Just talk to me. You can talk, you can do that. And I don't think that it, like, it wasn't a straight line from there, but that was a real turning point for me. And that was a real like exhale moment. And, you know, people, it's, it's little stuff like that, that, nobody would really see. And I hadn't really talked about before, but that's Keith. And that's, you know, that's, he's the captain. He was the captain then he's a captain now. That's awesome. I've never heard that story before. I follow you, but I didn't see that one. Wow. Look that's at that. cool. No, that's, that's awesome. That's a, that's a Keith doing like what a captain would do. That's like setting you up for success, preparing you without you thinking that you're preparing yourself in a, in a different form and then also testing you to make sure that you actually are up to par because if you failed there, then he, you know, he had you, but that's had you, yeah. yeah, that's what I mean. So uh, either you're ready for the big leagues or you aren't. Um, Jason Worth was kind of that guy uh, with the Nationals. And I remember him bringing some young guys because that 2014 team when I was with the Nationals, he did a few things like that where he would set guys up and be like, Hey, look, this is, this is what we need from you. If you can't do this, you can't be a part of this team because we need to win a championship. And that's what Keith did for you. That's awesome, man. Yeah. I mean, well, what, you know, I, I think about this all the time from a big leaguers perspective, the talent difference between a triple a player and a major league player is like probably that much. It's gotta be the mental side, right? Like that's, that's the main difference, right? That's what I, that's why I had such a long career was it wasn't because I have unbelievable stuff. Like I have a good curveball that worked out really well. I'm not going to pretend to do with it. Come on, Jerry. Yeah, it did. I had, I had a good curveball that kept me around, but it was also, if you look at all my projections every year, they were like, you're going to do this. And then I would always do this. It, it wasn't because of 
my stuff. It was because I could mentally work a game. I remember a conversation we had. It was either in Atlanta or in in DC, <clears throat> and we were. I think it was a DC. We were talking about getting Bryce out, maybe. And you start going, and this is why you were always. He was always like just a little bit smart. It was always tough to really like. You could get to a point, but he was going through all the the different things, the different prep, the different ways that you think about kind of in general attacking hitters and attacking lefties and attack. And then I just like pushed one too far where I was like, so, so give me an example then. Like, how would you look to get out Bryce? And you just kind of looked at me and you're like, you know, I can't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, because Bryce is going to look at that. Yeah, you right. know what I mean? He's a good smart guy too. And there's, you can't, you know, now we could talk about it and those there's things where I, I would see it, but I can't, I can tell you about certain things and, and the best, the best, advice that I got about prep is from hitters like Chili Davis. Um, I love talking to him about pitching because he would talk to me about hitting in the same way. And we would learn so much off of each other. And he's like, oh, I can't tell you everything because you might have to face one of my hitters later on in your career. It's all, it's one of those, you know, like I appreciate you, but maybe later. <laughs> so we, we talked a lot about Keith, but I, I do have to ask because it might be your funniest moment on the air how long did you grill uh, Gary for calling you Steve Jobs on a live broadcast without even knowing, really, which was the craziest part? You know what it was? And this is, again, it's like this behind the scenes stuff that nobody would ever know. So our producer, Greg Picker, he likes to keep everything loose. And he always, whether it's sending it to somebody, you know, back in the studio for a, a game break, whether it's sending it to me. He's always like, all right, stand by, you know, Steve Jobs coming up. And it was, he never uses the person's right name. And so this had been going on for years. Like every time that Gary was going to send it to me, it's like, oh, uh, Steve Jobs, you know, coming to, come to Steve Jobs after this batter. And Gary just said it. And that's why he had no idea either. <laughs> and that's why you see, like, I think that both Ron and Keith would have had that reaction anyway of like Steve Jobs. But it was <laughs> hilarious because, He'd been called Greg had been calling me Steve Jobs for five years, and Gary just said it on the air. <laughs> That's a good one. Those are that you saw. Jolly calls me a new name almost every. Episode. I try to do a different one every episode, but one of these times we're going to be in the middle of conversation, and I'm going to call you one of those names. Now that I know it's that that's be how it Jeremy. happens, it's going to be Jeremy because I get called Jeremy more often than I get called Jerry, which is. It's bizarre. You don't look like a Jeremy. You really don't. No, you're, you're clear, Jerry. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment that I look like an 80-year-old man because all Jerry's, when you, you, know, you think, it's like a Walter name. Like Walter and Jerry are like the oldest people name from the male side. You're dyeing your hair really well. It looks nice. <laughs> you're fooling everybody right now. It's They're crazy. coming in. <laughs> uh, I'm going to be full Gelb's gray here. You know, as my two toddlers grow, they, they're quickly... <laughs> changing my hair color. Uh, I love that too. Jolly, I texted Jerry at like 8.30 this morning saying, hey, we feel good for 10. He's like, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna text you around nine. I didn't want to text you too early. I've been up for like six hours at this point. <laughs> I gotta, it's midday. We had a, uh, yeah, I, I just, you know, I'm learning, I'm learning a new profession. Like this is all brand new for me too. And so I, you know, I wanted to make sure that you were, we we're still good because, you know, as you know, with especially players, you, we're having a player on 
they may just ghost you for the next three weeks. You know what I mean? And so that's fine. And your, your level of celebrity, I don't know if it's gotten to your head yet. Oh, it has hundred percent. Yeah. Good. Okay. Cause he, he could have ghosted us. You should see me in the supermarket now when the, uh, the deli guy asked me about what, what the CBA is going to look like. That's what I'm <laughs> the deli guy is putting, putting you on the spot. I'll tell you the first time I got recognized, we were out to dinner, blew my mind. I was totally not expecting it. And uh, waiter gives the check out at the end of the night and just leans in. He'd been, you know, didn't say a word the entire dinner. Just leans in. He goes, Hey, are you going to trade Bartolo? <laughs> <laughs> go, what? What? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. The answer to that is no, you can't trade. You can't trade big sexy. Never can. Not allowed to. I mean, I was going to say uh, props to your deli guy for knowing that there's a lockout right now because half the like casual baseball fans I talk to and recognize me uh, don't even know like what's going on in the sport. They probably will soon, but right now they're that's in wild. blissful Met- unawareness. That's the one thing about Mets fans that I've learned, especially like I rode the train all the time. Mets fans that recognize me are so knowledgeable because if you know a middle relief lefty, like, you know, the team, you know, the game. And so most of the time it wasn't like, Hey, can I get a picture? It was like, Hey, go get him tonight. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? You know, go get Freddie Freeman. It's crazy. We were, talking, we were talking to somebody at my, at my son's school about this yesterday, actually, it was just asking about, about my job and, you know, do people, do people, do people ever recognize you? And I said, my level of celebrity is like that much compared to the, the vast general public, but that small percentage they really know you. It's not like a, there's no in between like, Oh, aren't you that guy? It's like, Hey, how's Jason doing in school? Like, you know, it's like asking about your kids. I mean, yeah. That's, that's yeah. That's a deep level of, of knowledge because if you do, if you know the, the on-field reporter, right. yeah, you know, the team, that's you know great. Team. That's right. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit about, about your career. So you, you went to Syracuse, like the, number one the number one communication school in the country what was your did you have an ideal like did you want to be Gary no so that's one of the interesting things is and people ask when Gary takes time off because Kevin used to do play-by-play all the time that I mean they love Wayne but they're like hey why why don't you ever do it I've never done play-by-play before in my life in my and honestly at this point now it kind of horrifies me like that is one (laughs) of the I tried to do a, a tape just because I thought, well, let me give it a shot in spring last year. I did one with Wayne and I went to Gary the next day and I said, Gary, that I have already have a ton of respect. I have never respected anyone more in my life than respecting you for what you're doing. And he just goes, thank you. Like you get it now. Yeah. Now you tried now, but, you know, but yeah. So my, you know, my background was, I, I, was a, I was a huge sports fan. I, I mean, all sports, but actually hockey was my main sport. Played it growing up. My dad was the physical therapist for the Rangers from 88 to 96. I was seven years old when they won the cup in 94. He was on the bench. He was a part of all of that. Mike Richter would come over the house for dinner. Like, I, you know, none of it seemed weird to me. It was, oh, that's my dad's work friend. And, oh, look at what this team is doing for the city. And, oh, my God, I'm obsessed with this. And so... I remember distinctly, like that was first grade. I remember saying, I want to be a part of this somehow. I didn't, you know, at that point it was still play in the NHL, but that very quickly got um, taken away. And I love to talk. So I'm like, all right, I'll just talk about it for a living. But the guy that I looked up to 
was Al Troutwig because I thought he had the coolest job in the world at MSG where essentially he just lived at the garden. Like that was my, like he's, he just lives at the garden covering the Knicks and the Rangers. What, what could be better than that? And so I actually, when I got out of school, I had met Al Troutwig through an internship that I had in college. And he had sent me, an, he, had, he had told me to send him an email when I graduated just you know, to let him know what I was up to and, and maybe there would be something locally he could, he could get me in touch with. I sent him this email and he hooked me up with this guy, Mike Quick, who, you know, still to this day, my greatest mentor, um, who covered high school sports in the area. And MSG was starting this, this 24-7 high school sports network. And they brought me on to do like one sideline football game a week and do one story reporting a week for his show. And I kind of slowly worked my way up. Eventually, after four years, I was anchoring the, the local sports show that we did, the high school sports show that we did. And through that kind of opportunity and exposure to the MSG family, I got some chances to do some film work on, on Rangers radio and Knicks and Rangers intermission and halftime reports doing the MSG 150. And so, you know, I just kind of snowballed there and then MSG varsity folded and MSG didn't have a full-time opening for me. So I reached out to SNY kind of cold calling. And again, like right place, right time. They happen to have an opening coming up. They brought me in for an audition. I got the job as a just kind of general assignment reporter. And then Kevin left <laughs> and it was like, Hey, we think you could be good at this. Why don't you go and, and do this 55 game audition essentially where KB was going to be going back and forth between his Fox duties split in time. And so like, I never grew up. My whole, my whole goal was always to be a studio host. It was always to be doing New York, some New York sports team as a studio host. I kind of fell into this baseball reporter job and I fell in love with it. Um, you know, I, I, there's this connection to the game and to the, the product and the players that you don't feel and you don't understand when you don't get a chance to do that. Uh, I still love studio hosting. I got to add Jet Studio Hosting to my, my job description this year, which has been great. <clears throat> but I think unless you go out in the field, you're almost missing something in a studio role. And I think it's why all the great news anchors were correspondents first. You have to truly understand what it's like to be on the ground. And, you know, not that studio hosts necessarily throw bombs all the time anyway, but when you don't have that face-to-face -face understanding, when, when you don't understand that that's a real person on the other end, you can kind of throw bombs from a tower with no blowback. You know what I mean? Um, and so I've, I've loved, it's kind of, it's a long-winded way of saying, yeah, I want it to be a studio host. And I think somewhere down the line, like maybe that's where I land. But I love the, the connection to the players. I love learning the stories. I love being able to find these interesting things, report on them. And honestly, doing the Jets role, it was a little weird when I would have a question, not being able to go get that direct answer. You know, like it, it was different. So again, like a long-winded way to talk about my career, how I got to where I am. A lot of it was kind of right place, right time. But I think part of any good career path in life is is having an idea but also being open to seeing where things take you I, that's literally what i wanted to 
kind of get out of you was it's the same. Like I live my dream, right? I played in the big leagues. My dream wasn't to be a middle reliever and a, a loogie guy. My dream was to be Jacob deGrom and be the greatest starting pitcher of all time to be Randy Johnson. But you, you chase your dream with reality in mind and you start to pivot and you keep your options open while you're still working hard and climbing your way up. And so I, I love that, that you're, I love your story. I love the way you go and it's luck and right time, right place, right time, but it's also being prepared and being willing to do those things. Because to me, luck is only as good as how prepared you are when that opportunity shows up. And so that's what I always try to tell people is to, is to stay flexible, keep pursuing your dream, but don't get this deadlocked idea of what it is you think you want to do. Be aware of the situation and be able to pivot because uh, when an option comes up, the only bad choice that you make is so many people are, are scared to make a wrong choice. The only choice, the only time it's wrong is when you don't make it or you second guess it the whole time, because now you can go this way. And then if you need to turn back, you can like just More keep grinding by, by indecision than wrong decision. Right? Correct. Indecision is the only wrong decision. Exactly. We need to get you guys like an hour long TED talk and just let you go. <laughs> just let you go. This has been oh, great. I love it. I've been loving We've this. Been pitching that for a while. Now. So if you, you know, now Ted didn't call us back. No, I'm, I'm on the cutting edge here. I'll set it up. Don't worry. I'm producer extraordinaire. All right, Steve, I, I have one more question for you because you covered a lot of my, my last basis there talking about your dad, how he was PT uh, for the Rangers and you were christened as a, as a Jets fan from birth. I need to ask you about the origins of your baseball fandom, because I think we need a little bit of transparency and honesty here with our listeners. Yeah, well, you know what? The transparency has been out there, but it's kind of faded into the background. So thank you guys for at the back end. Now you've lost all unearthing it, unearthing it. So yeah, I, I mean, I'll admit it. Grew up a Yankee fan. And I will tell you a funny story about that too. When I got the job, one of the first things that happened was I was going to be interviewed for the post in like a, Hey, big shoes to fill guy replacing Kevin Burkhart. And I said to our PR person at the network said, they're going to ask me, I grew up locally. Did I grow up a Mets fan? What do you want me to say? And they were like, the worst thing that could happen is you lie about that. And then there's a picture that comes out with you in a Yankees hat. (laughs) So I didn't. So I told them, but the one thing I will say, and I know that this, like it comes off as like, oh, he's just, he's just placating us now. When I grew up, so my, my dad's dad, my grandfather was Polish. He grew up in Poland, came over here, was not a sports fan at all. And my dad's uncle was a huge, um, a huge Dodgers fan, hated the Yankees when they left. So my dad only grew up going to, to Shea Stadium and only was a huge Yankee fan because of Mantle, as most were of that generation, right? And so my dad, we always grew up, like we were Yankees fans, but there was never this animosity towards the Mets. And in fact, we were such big baseball fans that I would say we went to as many Mets games as we went to Yankees games because it was really just who was home that weekend. And whoever was home that weekend, we'd get tickets and we'd go see them play. I don't really remember this, and maybe it's from a, a Yankees fan's perspective, but I don't remember this like crazy animosity between the two sides until I was like in high school, right around that world series, right? That's when I feel like it really started to pick up for me 
where it was like, oh, like you got to pick a side. Like, you can't, you know, you can't even root for the other team just to do well. You know, it was like, so, um, so yeah, so grew up a Yankee fan. But the one thing I'll say too, and I always used to, to like think people were, were lying when they would come to our school to talk to us in, in Syracuse, where they would say, you can grow up a huge fan of a team, but when you get into this, you find yourself rooting for people more. And it does happen. Like, it is impossible to get to know Jerry and not root for Jerry. Like, it's a, and you try, you want to be as impartial as you can, but you're a human. Like, you're not going to go out there and, and just root on the air, but you want the guys that, that you know well and that you know personally to do well. Quite frankly, it's much better for my job and my life if the team does well. A, people are much more willing to talk to you when things are going good. B, I hate, I can't stand media members who are like, doesn't matter if the team wins or loses, my job's the same. There is no way that your job was the same during that run in 2015 as it was in August 2017. It wasn't. That, that August 2017 was terrible. That was awful coming to the ballpark every day and and just there was nothing doing and everybody was getting traded off and nobody was in a good mood. So, yeah, so it's like the fandom kind of goes away now and it's, I mean, you have a job to do, but if you're doing your job the right way, you're getting to know these people and you, you develop, uh, you know, a soft spot for a lot of them. Some, some of them you don't, some of them you root against. But <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, he had a bad day. That's not against me. <laughs> no, that's good. I'm kidding. Okay. I will tell you one other. I want to get one other. I know we've got. No, 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 you're good. Go. We're here for you, man. I I don't know if this fits in any way to what we were talking about, but I was thinking about it this morning because I do want fans to know this as another layer of respect for these players. I used to be one of these guys, not that I didn't respect the players, but I used to be one of these fans that would hear all the time about, Oh, the, you know, they're out on the West Coast, like they're exhausted. They, you know, they probably weren't playing well because of the West Coast swing. I would be like, as most fans think, I mean, come on. They're flying privately, staying in these lush hotels. Like what? It's, they probably got to sleep in that day. Come on. What's that's not an excuse. And my first year, my first big West Coast trip, we were in. It was the back end. I want I think it was a three city trip. We were in San Diego, played a night game in San Diego, flew out to Arizona. So it wasn't even like a crazy long flight. But by the time we got to the hotel, it was almost 4 a.m. I was as exhausted as I've ever been in my entire life. And all I'm doing is watching, by the way. Like, I'm not playing. I'm just sitting there watching. I could not keep my eyes open. And now I was so new to the job, too, that I didn't realize when you travel with the team, uh, you give your bags to the the clubhouse guys before the game on getaway day, and then they bring them to you in your room. The bellhop brings them to you in your room um, when you get to the next city, right? I didn't realize that you could call down to the front desk and say, hey, it's late. Leave them down there. I'll get my bags the next day. So I'm sitting there saying, I got to stay up for this guy. Uh, and obviously the broadcasters get our bags last because we should get our bags last. So it's a solid like half hour, 40 minutes that you're just sitting in your room. So I'm so tired. I turn on all the lights. I turn on the TV. I keep my suit or whatever nice thing I was wearing on. I keep my shoes on and I go to the foot of the bed and I sit on the foot of the bed so that I can't even be lying down and shut my eyes. Right. 
The next thing I know, next thing I know, I wake up, it's 10.30 in the morning. I'm still sitting there with my eyes closed, like on my chest, still standing up or sitting up at the foot of the bed. And my luggage is at my feet. Meaning that somebody knocked on the door, I didn't get it, came in, put the luggage in front of me and left and I didn't wake up. That was the level of exhaustion of literally <laughs> just sitting, watching these guys play baseball for a few hours. Never again did I ever question anybody talking about a West Coast trip or the exhaustion because it is so, so real. So real. So I want to put that story. That was incredible. That's a good one. I love that story. I wish the uh, I wish the bellman would have pushed you over just just slightly. <laughs> that's that's a great story. Yeah, Steve, it has been a pleasure, an absolute honor to have you on our show. I can listen to you tell stories all day, man. We might have to do this again at some point. Well, listen, if you keep struggling to get guests, where I'm still number one, come back. <laughs> Oh yeah, we we'd love to have you back on. Um, and congratulations, by the way, to you guys. I've texted you. Jerry separately, but I love what you guys are doing over there. I love what you, John Boy Media is doing in general. But uh, I think this is a, a great, great show for Mets fans, and I'm I'm happy. Uh, listen, I'm I'm glad Jerry is with us too, and I'm glad he's gotten into this because he was one of the best ever to deal with and has amazing things, amazing insight. Um, but Jolly, I like I told you, I I paid attention to you from afar. And I think it's really awesome that you get this crack and, and you're taking it and you're doing great things. So keep it up. I appreciate it, Steve. Thanks for sharing custody of Jerry with me. It's like we're two parents, you know? <laughs> yeah. Thanks for coming on. Congrats on the, on the Jets gig. Tell Julie, I said, hello, your, your, your two kids. That's exciting. Thanks for taking some time out and talking to us. You got it guys. All right. See you, Steve. Jacob DeGrom. Alonzo to his left, flipped to DeGrom.